Let's pray together. Father, what a, what a word we serve, what a gospel we have, that our sins, though they are many, your mercy is more. And what an avalanche of wisdom just poured out on us through Bob Russell. What a gift those lessons are for us. Oh, grant that they would be fulfilled in us, I pray. And now, Lord, help me to be faithful to your word and to tell the truth and to be as helpful as I can be for the sake of these friends in ministry, that you would guide them, fill them with your Holy Spirit, meet every need that they have, strengthen their hands in grace, advance your mission through them, glorify your name, and accomplish exceedingly more than we can ask or think because of this little time we have together, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought it would be helpful to uh, the greatest number of us here, if I looked at the succession process at Bethlehem Baptist Church and how it came about through three lenses. So, number one, the outcome of God's work. Number two, the rule of God's Word. Number three, the sovereignty of God's sending, and all of that under the banner of the sweetness of God's blood-bought grace. The reason I put this banner, the sweetness of God's blood-bought grace over the whole thing right here at the outset is because in the retelling of a story of a succession that seems to have at this point uh, gone pretty well, it will almost inevitably sound like it was done with less conflict, less sin, less confusion, less uncertainty than was in fact the case. So last Monday, I got out my files on the succession. I took 48 different documents and looked through them again to narrate the two and a half years leading up to the transition. And it brought up again all the emotions of frustration and uncertainty and dead-end streets that we walked down and personal conflict and relational stress. And it brought tears, really did bring tears to my eyes of joy because of seeing the hand of God so mercifully, so graciously, so tenderly weaving together the completed fabric of 33 years of ministry. So please know that as I tell the story, wherever it sounds too simple, too easy, too free of controversy and conflict, you're probably right. And when all is said and done, we owe every good in our lives to blood-bought grace. So that's the banner that has to fly over all of these. And when I use the word blood-bought, which is one of my favorite hyphenated adjectives, I mean it and I love it because it is built on my favorite verse in the Bible. 
Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Now, the logic of that verse is the most beautiful logic in the universe. Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, us believers, because the rest of this verse doesn't count for anybody but believers. He, since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, us the elect, us the believers, therefore he will most certainly give us absolutely everything we need to get to heaven and glorify his name. That's my favorite verse in the Bible because it relates everything to Christ crucified. As the one who purchased, blood-bought everything that's good in my life or that's bad that God turns for good. Without the cross, nothing, nothing good for us. Only hell. If you didn't wake up in hell this morning, it was a good day. <laughs> and it was that for one reason. He did not spare his own son. So when I say the banner flying over the telling of this story is the sweetness of blood-bought grace. I'm not blowing smoke. I'm not waxing eloquent. I'm taking every word with blood-earnest seriousness. It's really sweet. It's really blood-bought. It's really grace. And it's everything good. So there's the banner. Don't forget it, because part of the story is just going to sound too good to be true. If anything good happened to Bethlehem over those years of transition, or if anything painful happened that God turned for good, it was totally undeserved by all of us at the church, especially the pastor. So that's the flag I'm waving Let's go to the three lenses I mentioned. Number one, the outcome of God's work. And by this, I mean the effects of God's work. What really happened? What's the story? What did God do? And this is probably the, the least important third of the message because they're just kind of facts. But, but processes leading up that will be more important. But this, this is what you need to know to make sense out of that. So my first day on the payroll at Bethlehem Baptist Church, July 1, 1980. And my last day on the payroll, Barnabas's birthday, March 31, 2013, just short of 33 years of, of ministry. I was the 14th pastor in the church history. It was 111 years old when I came, 148 years old now. I was 34 years old when I came. I was 67 when I left. It was the only pastorate I've ever known. Therefore, my pastoral experience is very, very limited. I can't pass judgment hardly on anything because I've only known one glorious ministry where the people were merciful to the max. So 
I'm not an authority on anything church-wise. On November 30, 2010, you got that now? I, I left in 13. On November 30, 2010, I met in a hotel room downtown Minneapolis with Al Mohler, Mark Dever, C.J. Mahaney, Ligon Duncan, the guys who run Together for the Gospel, and they came to town to talk to me and to advise me about what I should do with my life. <laughs> and I shared with them how I was feeling it's too big, it's too complicated, I don't have solutions for the unending stream of practical problems that there are. It has simply, it seems, outgrown my capacities to figure things out. I just want to preach. And my view of the pastor is that you cannot just preach. You cannot. You, you, you have to trumpet the vision, and if you're going to trumpet it, you can't be handed the vision on Friday. You've got to be part of the furnace that forges the vision, and that's where I was. So I told them all that, and, and uh, they gave really, they, they put things in motion for me at that time. I encouraged the Council of Elders to form a subcommittee um, of succession, just, just to be the clearinghouse, just to begin to think, just to ponder and be the nerve center of where ideas could be thought through. I read Bob Russell's book on transition. I got on the phone and called Elmbrook Church, where Stuart Briscoe had been. I want to know how they did it. I was just starting to poke around to see how these things were, were done. In April of 2011 now, so we went from November 10 to now around to 2011, so we're still two years out from the end, I came to the elders April 5, 2011, introduced them to what I'm calling the Antioch moment in our church. And the Antioch moment was taken from Acts 13, where uh, Paul and Barnabas are going to, in a moment of fasting and prayer, they're going to be spoken to by the Holy Spirit, you go, you leave, you leave. I mean, these are the two probably most gifted teachers there, and you, you be done and go do missions and change the world. That must have been extraordinarily painful for them. So I'm, I'm calling it the Antioch moment. I don't know how long this moment is going to take, but, but guys, we need to think this way. And I'm going to call you to fasting and prayer with me for six weeks of focused, concerted, extraordinary prayer as elders on our face before the Lord seeking him with regard to this. I got their permission, which was not easy, and I preached on it the next Sunday, the Antioch moment, and, and raised the flag, which took everybody off guard, that, that uh, probably we're going to put in motion here a, a succession process. Don't know how long it will take. Don't panic. It's all right. I know a lot of you like being here, but uh, this can't go on forever. So that's now what, two, two, years, two years out from where the actual transition is going to happen. The more I talked with Noel, who's sitting down here, the more we realized this, this can't be drug out for five years. Now that you've mentioned it, you can't do this. That would be very bad for the people. So it needs to go uh, quicker rather than uh, later. 
So the elders um, appointed a, a search committee to begin to look at possible replacements. And uh, I suggested, and they thought it was a good idea, we look in the Bethlehem orbit first. Came up with a list of about 17 names. Um, the way we set it up, and I was, I was making all these suggestions and getting pushed back and whatnot. The way we set it up was that I would sit on this committee of seven uh, lay elders and seven pastoral staff, so 14 plus me. I would sit on that group and provide whatever input seemed appropriate until they had two candidates and I'm, I'm disappearing. Because I knew that in order to really grill whoever's coming next, they would need to be asked, they would need to be asking questions about how they're different from John Piper and how you're going to make up for the weaknesses he's had over the years. He's got strengths, got that, but are you different? Can you do things that he couldn't do? And you, you can't do that with me there. So I disappeared at that point so that they could have complete freedom. God gave us two stunning candidates from within, I believe. Both of them expressed a willingness to uh, be considered and I went out of the process completely. Um, the reason I think we could find two guys within the orbit, so there's, a, there's a seminary and a college there, and there's Desire and God, and there's the church, and there's lots of guys who've come through the system, so we're, we're talking quite a, a lot of people who breathe our air and feel what we feel. And I think the reason we could find candidates that that this group loved is because the, the, the commitment we have to the same vision of God, a reformed Christian hedonist, complementarian, radical, glad, grave worship. I mean, there's a lot of pieces that create the feel at the church. They loved it, and they wanted it, wanted it preserved. So stunningly, there they were, two really live candidates. One of them, uh, after being grilled for a long time, uh, was chosen, namely Jason Meyer. He was a graduate of our institute in 1998. He um, went off to Southern Seminary and got an MD and a PhD, served as a pastor and a teacher in Louisiana. We called him back to be a professor in our seminary, and there he was waiting to be touched for this work. Now here's the question, here's the challenge. How do you take a, a candidate that's just been approved with enthusiasm by 14 people and bring about a thrilled unity on 25 pastors and a thrilled unity with 40 elders and a thrilled unity with 3,000 members and 5,000 attenders. How do you do that? That has to happen. We're not going to have a new pastor that people aren't thrilled about. Why would you do that? So there's, there's the question of how do you, how do, you do it? What's the, what's the process? So in January of 2012, um, the succession committee recommended a two-step, two-stage plan of approval. I, I drafted this, they pushed back, we got it worked out, and we presented it to the elders. The elders said, okay, let's do it that way. And it goes something like this. Um, 
He will meet first with the pastoral staff. You go from the, the, the finest sieve to the broadest sieve and uh, take as long as you need, meetings with the staff, and God did it, and all the pastors would be thrilled. Yes, go for it. Present Jason. The elders, same process, 40 people, meet as often as you need, take as long as you want, meet with wives, do it. God gave us. I don't think there was a single elder who said, nope, that's not the guy. So you got total unanimity from the pastors, you got total unanimity from the elders, and now, now the question is, how do, you, how do you do it with the church? And, and uh, we said, okay, we're going to do it in uh, two votes. One vote will be to establish him in August, if it passes as associate pastor alongside John, he'll do that from August to December. We'll have another vote if you like him after five months. This is risky. You can't bring somebody in from another city and do this because then, then they, they, they can't. What are they going to do if they don't get voted on the second time? But if you've got a local guy, this will work. So going to vote again. In January, we're going to switch places. He becomes senior leader. I become associate. We'll do that for three months, and I'll be done. So that's, in fact, what happens. And, and the vote to call Jason after uh, preaching once, North Campus, meeting, preaching downtown North Campus, I mean, downtown campus, meeting with the people, preaching South Campus, meeting with the people, lots of opportunities to, to hear him, lots of opportunities to meet and talk to him. And then when the vote was taken... On May 20th, 2012, for that first trial run, the vote was 784 to yes, 8 no on a closed ballot. That is unheard of in our church. I suspect it would be in yours. Everybody felt like that's breathtaking. That is simply breathtaking. My vote was nothing like that when I came. None of the staff I've ever brought on have gotten a vote like that. Something extraordinary happened that night. And the people were absolutely blown away that on a closed written ballot, it would be 784 to, to 8. The, the vote that was taken in December was 546 to 18, and it was, it was done. And we finished as associate pastor, with Jason as a senior pastor in March of 13. Noel and I packed up our bags and moved for one year to Knoxville, Tennessee to get out of the way entirely. At the end of a year away, we quietly moved back to our house, which is eight-minute walk from the church, and started attending the nine o'clock service, and we've had our pew ever since. <laughs> and loving every minute of those worship services. The elders and I uh, crafted a pastor emeritus covenant with rigorous limitations on what I may do and what I must get permission to do, weddings, funerals, speaking, anything. The people voted on it. They, were not, they didn't like it because it sounded like they were spanking me before I'd made any mistakes. And I said, I wrote it. It's okay. We need clarity here, big time. So I'm, Noel and I are going to speak for the very first time at a youth gathering of our own church in, in a couple of weeks, and I must get Jason's permission to do that. 
I've gotten his permission to go to the hospital. I've gotten his permission to do weddings. I've gotten his permission to do, do funerals. People come to me. I said, you got to go to Jason. I don't work here anymore. And so, it, so far, that document has been very, very valuable. So though, that's the outcome. It's, it's been extraordinarily happy. I sit and watch the worship services and soar in worship to God with the people looking around thinking, this is amazing. I love this place. I love what's happening here. I love worshiping here as much on this side as I did on that side. And as far as I can tell, the church is flourishing. I'm not on the painful insides anymore, but we just uh, voted on and, and began to fund a vision for the future called Fill These Cities with planting 25 new churches in 10 years and reaching 25 unengaged peoples in, in 10 years, I said to 10 years. And uh, building the building for the South Campus has been very patient for 15 years in high school and strengthening the core. So it looks like four years on, things are healthy, growing strong, and I'm, I'm really happy to be in my pew praising God with the other people. That's the first lens. Here's the second one. The rule of God's word. Strong and healthy transitions, I think, happen in, they grow like trees in a certain kind of soil. Now, I know that uh, good transitions happen in lots of kinds of churches, lots of philosophies of ministry, lots of cultures, lots of theologies. And so I'm not in any way claiming you've got you to believe what we believe or, or uh, have uh, polity structures like we have in order to have a fruitful or strong or happy transition. However, I do believe that there is a causal connection between what we are and have done and what happened. There could be other causal dynamics that work. I'm saying this is ours, and you then need to, to ponder whether you think that would be worth emulating, because it's clearly not the only way that good transitions happen, but it is what God used, I believe, and so I'll give you four ingredients to this soil, so the good soil in which in which a transition happened. It is, it's soil that is cultivated for 33 years, not, not done in the last two years. So ingredient number one, and, and remember the name of this is the rule of God's word. Number one, God's word led us to establish a plurality of elders at the church who meet the biblical qualifications for eldership. When I came to Bethlehem, there were no elders they didn't believe in elders. There were 24 deacons, one pastor, me, sitting on 11 standing committees ex officio. Those standing committees were made up by annual votes on a competitive ballot in a church with about 300 people. Do the math. That's a prescription for unspiritual leadership. There aren't that many qualified people. So that had to give, and you might think, well, that's, that's going to be shocking. Well, not if you take 10 years to do it, which we did. Um, my approach was to 
lead the nominating committee, most powerful committee in the church. I deemed I'm going to sit there and I'm going to just give devotions every time they do their work and train them over three, four, five, six years what spiritual leadership looks like from the Bible so that they won't put anybody on the ballot who shouldn't be there. I don't, I don't care what it says. You're not going to put an unspiritual person on there just because they're a warm body, right? You won't do that, will you? You've looked at your Bibles, haven't you? And that's, that's how things really began to change without any structural change. We study, your, we study our Bible. Then I said to the, to the deacons, look guys, there are two lists of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Not just one, two. There's deacons, there's the paragraph, and there's elders. There's another paragraph. Some of you guys, I know you now after a while, some of you guys are elder types, some of you guys are deacon types. You know that, don't you? And they would just nod their heads and say, yep, that makes, when y'all read those lists and I see apt to teach and uh, govern well, I, mm, I, that's him, that's not me. I like to take up the offering. I like to greet the people. I like, but I'm not, I'm not into that teaching stuff. Okay, you're not an elder. You shouldn't be on the ruling council of the church. I didn't say that quite like that. <laughs> but I could, I could about eight years in. So teach the elders. Teach them for 10 years. I mean, teach the deacons. Teach them for 10 years. Teach the church over, the, over those years, we love the Bible here. At, after 10 years, they get the impression, they love the, we love the Bible here. We're under the Bible here. This is a church ruled by God through his word. That's what we are here. That's part of our DNA and our culture. Bible says so, we do it. When you get a church, about, about two-thirds there, you can vote on things. Not before. What's the point? You lose. You should never lose a vote. Ever. I've lost some. You should never lose a vote. Your timing is wrong if you lose a vote. Because you're not persuading people. You're not loving them enough to show them in the Bible that what we're doing is worthy. Why would you lose a vote if you believe what you're doing is biblical? Because you're too hasty. So soil number one is that we put in place a plurality of elders. So 10 years in, elders, the deacons are totally persuaded there should be elders ruling this church. And the, the uh, people are now two-thirds persuaded. Now, so let's go for it. So we wrote a new constitution, took us four years to write the constitution. Council of elders, no standing committees, Create them, kill them every week, whatever you need to reach this city. And the people voted to create a constitution that had a council of elders because they saw it in the Bible. That took 10 years. Second ingredient, and that, that, that is the strong, healthy, biblically literate humble, wise, qualified, 40 men who guided this church through transition. That's why I mentioned it. Second, soil ingredient number two. God's word led us to formulate a higher doctrinal standard for the elders than for the newest member of the church. This took 
another 10 years. When I came to the church, there was a member statement of faith, same as the denomination statement of faith, Baptist General Conference, today called Converge Worldwide. I would call it a broad, imprecise, generic, vanilla, evangelical statement of faith. All true if you fudge on some of the words that are intended to be fudged on. Because they're intended to be ambiguous. That's the way people write, write documents that can unify people who disagree. I think the New Testament calls for a council of elders whose standard of doctrinal knowledge, commitment, and capacity to teach is vastly superior to the new member who just joined the church and got saved last week. But the way it was, there's just one statement they all have to sign. That's not good. You must have a higher standard for the elders. How do you get I mean, here's what you should be asking. You should say, whoa, you, you sound really strong on that. So why'd you take 20 years to do it? You, that's totally contradictory. All that wild lifting of the voice that you just gave us. <laughs> you took 20 years to do that all-important thing? Here, here's the catch. This is a congregational church. It's a Baptist church. When I say elder ruled, I don't mean ruled out from under the congregation. The congregation is going to vote on the elders, they're going to vote on the pastors, they're going to vote on the budget, they're going to vote on the vision, and they're going to vote on what the elders have to believe to be elders. Which means if I'm going to lift the standard of a, of a sovereign God, all of them embracing what the Puritans called the doctrines of grace, embracing Christian hedonism so that God is most glorified in you and you are most satisfied in him, ruled by men, according to the 1 Timothy 2.12. <laughs> if, if we're going to have a leadership defined on paper that way so that it lasts into perpetuity, the people have to be persuaded that's a good idea. That's why it took 20 years. You, you don't just walk into a church and do stuff. The people have to be with you. They have to love what you're doing. They have to love what you're doing. Love it. Which means preach, 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 pray, pray, pray. Love, love, love. I did a funeral every three weeks for 18 months when I came to the church. I'd never done a funeral in my life. I was a pure gift of God because I was in the life of, I mean, this church was all old. It was all old, a sea of gray hair. Every three weeks, I'm burying one of their friends and I'm pouring out my heart for them. I'm standing by the gravesides and, and they love me by the end of those 18 months. You're here. You're here for us. That's what you do for 20 years. You serve people. You teach people. You preach. You win them. And so at the end of 20 years, amazingly, the entire church voted 
to create an elder affirmation of faith that elevated the doctrinal standards of the elders a hundred miles above what you have to believe to be a part of this church. That's exactly the way it should be, I think. I don't think you have to believe hardly anything to be a Christian. That's going to get quoted, probably. (laughs) I mean, just come on, let's go out tonight and do a little evangelism, right? On the street, find somebody who's never been to church in their life. Share the gospel. You don't think the Holy Spirit can open their eyes and cause them to pray authentically to receive Jesus from what you share, share in, thir- in 30 minutes, 10 minutes? Yes, he can. And you know what? They shouldn't have to wait to join your church till they become a theologian. But they should wait 100 years before they become an elder if they don't know their Bible enough to teach people. So... That's not the manuscript, and I'm going to run out of time if I'm not careful. Number, where are we? Third ingredient. First oh. Timothy 3, 2, able to teach. Titus 1, 9, an overseer must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's who should sit on the ruling council of your church, whatever you call them. You ought to call them elders, but whatever you call them, because that's the word, you know, presbyteros is the word. Oh, you call them bishops. Would that be better? No, that wouldn't be better. <laughs> Pastors is fine, but these lay guys would choke on being called pastor probably. So, number three, second, sec, third ingredient in the soil. Oh, and I, the reason for saying that is that when it came to whether or not the, the, the replacement for John Piper would have John Piper's theology, nobody asked that question. Because John Piper's theology is that document that they had to believe to be an elder. And that happened in 2001. So for... What is it? 13 years, we've been one. We've been one as an eldership. So everybody knew this is where we're going. We love what we see in the Bible. Our God is sovereign over salvation. Our God glorifies himself through the happiness of his people. Our God loves a church led by spiritual men who are full of the Bible and Christ-like and humble Yeah, we want this. We're not going to, we don't want to see change in theology here. Third, God's word led us to nurture a culture of honest candor and vulnerability. Let me read you a verse that, boy, I feel so strongly about this. I'm a doctrinal guy. I love doctrine. I'll make a big deal out of of the whole counsel of God. But you want to just go down a level. I'm... I feel strongly about this. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse two. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse. I wish I could have heard Paul's tone of voice. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Wow. Yes tingles up and down my back. 
to think about having a church with that culture. I tried to model absolute honesty, absolute candor, forthrightness, vulnerability before the people in the pulpit, at elder meetings, anywhere else I met with people. There aren't two John Pipers here. There's no politicking going on in this church. He doesn't do lunches to get his way. No fog, no spin, no evasion, no fudging, no double talk, no half-truths, no distortions. Truth, truth, truth. And if we don't know as elders, we say, we don't know. Period. No fudging, no fog. We're not trying to cover anything up, make ourselves look better. 300 people at a business meeting say, why'd you do that? You better answer that question, Tim. Tim Johnson is a man without guile who's led as the Council of the Elders Chairman for 15 of my years or so, and I just want to bow down and almost worship him because he's so guileless. Guileless, meaning pure through and through. I don't know. We did it for this reason. This is a math issue. Would two of you guys go out and do the math? Just clarity to the max. Mm, so good. So that's what I mean by by a, a culture of candor and vulnerability. If, if you do that for 20, 30 years, you know what happens? The people don't put you above the Word of God because you've not let them ever do that. And they do not put you above criticism because you've made yourself so openly vulnerable to receive it. But they do trust you. They say, they tell us the truth. If Jason is this way and they say so, we trust you. You try to do transition without trust, big, big problems. Ingredient number four in the soil that uh, grows good transitions. Um, we developed a culture of writing papers to make proposals to the eldership and then the church. The papers would include a statement of the proposal, explanation of what's needed, offer some history, why it's biblical. And the reason papers matter is because a paper trail is accountable. If you don't have positions written out on papers that you're arguing about and voting on, people are going to distort the last meeting and what was said there. Right here is what I argued. This is what I said. These are the reasons I said it. These are the things I think will, will make it good. And here are the budget implications and the staffing implications. That's what I handed out last week. We never vote on anything the day we hand it out. We're waiting because you get to talk about it, think about it, do your research, come back. That's just part of what accountability is. You never want to win anything by coercion. Ever. Persuasion, persuasion, persuasion. And if you don't have a paper trail of those arguments and discussions, they're going to get distorted. So that's my reason for saying it's a good thing to create a culture of paper writing. Last and more quickly, my time's up. 
the, the sovereignty of God's sending. So, the outcome of God's work, that was the first part, the facts. The rule of God's Word with four illustrations, strong biblical eldership, um, elder affirmation of faith coming into being, culture of candor, vulnerability, and a culture of writing. And I close now with the sovereignty of God's sending, and here's what I mean. I believed, and we believed as an eldership, that all our doing is not decisive. God is decisive. In other words, we must do good things to bring about a transition. All the good things we do are not decisive. They're right, they're biblical, hopefully, but they're not decisive. God is decisive. And here are the texts. It will be done. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has set you, made you, put you, ethita, as overseers. I believe in 1980, God did that. God set me as an overseer, and in 2013, he set Jason. Second text, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints. He gave, Edokin, he gave them. The risen Christ gave John Piper to Bethlehem in 1980. He gave Jason to the church in 2013. I believe that. Christ did that. Third text, Ephesians 4. Oops, that was the second one. Third text, Matthew 9, 37. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to Sin, ekbalo, throw, throw out, throw out into the ministry. I believe in, in 1980, God threw, threw John, the Lord of the harvest, threw John Piper into Bethlehem. And he threw me out. And he threw Jason in because he loves the harvest. Takes care of his labors. Doesn't, there's always a cushion, he throws. Romans 10, 14, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are apostolosin, sent? I believe I was sent to Bethlehem in 1980, and I believe Jason was sent to Bethlehem. God did that. God did the sending. And one more, Luke 12, 41 to 42, who then is the faithful and wise steward? whom his master will set over, set over, katastase, appoint. The master will appoint the steward over the household. I believe God, the master of the house, decisively appointed John Piper to pastor this church in 1980, and he decisively acted and appointed Jason to be that pastor in 2013. And I said it was the last one, and I didn't know I had one more, one more. Colossians 4.17. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you received. Parelabe, you received from the Lord. I believe I received from the Lord a ministry in the summer of 1980, and I believe Jason received from the Lord. I received another one too. That's another conference. 
He received from the Lord a ministry. God is decisive. His sovereignty sins. We're not decisive. So God places overseers. Christ gives pastors. The Lord of the harvest throws laborers. God sends preachers. The divine householder appoints stewards. And from his sovereign hand, we receive ministry, which brings us back all the way back now to that six-week prayer meeting in 2011. Six weeks of focused prayer. And I'm going to end by quoting you a sentence in the sermon from April 9, 2011, where I said, when God-centered leaders don't know what they should do, and that became so true of me near the end, that's why I, I thought I gotta wrap this up. That came true too often. But it was true of all of us in April of 2011. When God-centered leaders don't know what they should do, because it is not revealed in the scriptures, they know what to do about not knowing what to do. Because it is revealed in the scriptures, namely, they pray. Because the outcome is God's work, and the rule is God's word, and the sending is God's sovereignty, and all the shortcomings in the process are under the sweet blood-bought grace of God. Father, I pray that every, every one of us would rest not in the competencies of our processes, which are never good enough. They're never without doubt. And there's so many dead-end streets. But your grace, your blood-bought grace, is absolutely essential for our survival and our flourishing. And I pray, oh God, that you would be on every one of these friends in this room for their ministry, that they would take everything encouraging that Bob Russell said earlier that was so wonderfully encouraging and all this story that I've just told and grant them to sort it out and apply it with great effectiveness in their ministries. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.